I welcome you to turn with me to First John, First John two twelve through fourteen. Let's pray. Our Father, Your Word is clear, and it's our eyes that are hazy. Your Word is true, and it's our ears that are stopped up. Your Word is pure, and our hearts are tarnished receptacles. But, O Lord, will You, by the power of Your Spirit, cut through our sinfulness, that we may know plainly Your Word, and that by it we might abide in Christ and He in us. In His name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 John 2, 12-14. The Apostle writes, Well, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. This is God's word. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at what I've called John's tests. Uh, They help us differentiate a genuine stake in Christ from a hypocritical one, and I've mentioned that there's three big ones, faith, obedience, and love, and last week we looked at the one of love, and before that we looked at uh, the one of obedience. I have to admit that the word test has not been my favorite word. I think it's accurate as long as we define it right, but while I've taken pains, I think, to use it correctly, it can still have a connotation in our minds that I want to ensure that we avoid. The way we think about tests, or tend to think about tests, is if I fail this test, I'm not going to get into college. Right? I'm not going to get the grade I want. The, the way we use the word test, and that's one type of test, is as a means of gaining admission or a specific, uh, a securing a grade. And that's not the type of test that we have in mind here in First John. That's the kind of test that Jesus accomplished for us. Because the means of gaining admission into fellowship with God and eternal life is a perfect grade on obedience, love, and faith. And we get failing marks. And only Jesus gets the required 4.0. So that's the type of test that we don't want to have in mind. The means of gaining admission. Rather, if we're going to use the word, the kind of test we have in mind is the kind that helps us form a picture of realities that are otherwise difficult to discern. Uh, A soil test, for example, if you're a gardener. We may test it simply by planting things and observing Seeing how the plants do, how they respond, that will give us a sense of the indicatives, the realities that are inside the soil. We may simply look at it. Is it, is it dark? Is it loamy? Is it full of worms? 
Or we might get really scientific and send off a, a sample to be tested and we'll get back uh, a readout telling us the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, cal- uh, uh, calcium, other minerals, pH, what is, our, what is going on in that soil. So if we must use the word test, these are the kinds of tests that we have in mind. Not one of admission, but assessment. This is important to understand for a few reasons. First, there's, we want one, but there's no single magic bullet test for assurance of salvation. There's no one sort of pass-fail test that we can take for ourselves. There's no formula we can apply, and we want everything to be formulaic. Just tell me this, 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 add it all up, and it makes sense. But there are tests or signs or gauges or analyses or evaluations or appraisals or whatever word you want to use that will help us get a sense of the realities that are going on inside of our hearts and to help us make our calling and election sure. Another reason it's important to understand properly these analyses or tests is just being honest. The the ones we just covered, obedience, and love are a bit difficult. They're a bit grueling, even for believers, because they highlight our own weakness and our own insufficiency. And that's why I believe that John pauses here in this passage to offer a word of confident assurance and encouragement to these saints. After a difficult couple of passages about love and and obedience, he wants to tell them and make sure they understand you already, if you're in Christ, you already have Christ and all of the benefits that come with the gospel. So if you get nothing else from this today, I want you to get this much, and this is a bit of a, a mouthful, but... Christians neither grow into or out of Christ or the gospel, but they grow in it. We do not grow into the it or out of it. We grow in it. In other words, Christ and everything that comes with him is soil, not a t-shirt. Soil already surrounds the roots. It, it, it will be a lifelong anchoring substrate and source of nourishment for our lives. T-shirts may be too, too small, maybe too big. We have to grow into them. We may grow out of them. That's not Christ. That's not the gospel. If you are in Christ, you already have all. This passage, John gives us eight descriptions of things that are already true of believers. You notice I titled the sermon already, and I'll use that word through this message. They're already true of us. And I believe really these eight can be condensed or, or described under uh, three unique headings or descriptions. So we'll look at those three in detail in a minute. But I think it'll be helpful first to break down the structure of this passage a little bit. Um, so this section, it appears, and you see this reflected in the way the ESV has it laid it out, is some sort of poetic passage. And that explains, I think, why it is laid out the way it is, why it's repetitive, and that's for the sake of emphasis. That's what 
what poetic language does. It's for emphasis. And he gives us six uh, purpose statements, six reasons why he's writing. I'm writing to you because. I'm writing to you because. And it's interesting that the word I am writing, grapho, there's a change in verb tense, and you see it in the ESV halfway through. In verses 1 through 3, I am writing, in the ESV is I am writing. These are present tense verbs. And then in uh, really 3 through 6, the next, uh, rather 4 through 6, the next ones are I write in the ESV. That's the aorist tense in the Greek, which gets a lot of ink in the commentaries, but I believe it's number one stylistic. And more importantly, I think the change marks out a second round of, of address to these people. So there's really two rounds of address. Each one of these I am writing statements is followed by a description, something that is true already about these believers. And the last one has three descriptions of young men, though I think they're actually all nested under the one uh, heading yet. Also importantly, and this will come up throughout, is that the verb in each description is a perfect tense verb, which is very exciting. If you want to nerd out about uh, Greek verbs, just meet me at the whiteboard after church and just make sure the line's not too long. We have to have lunch, you know. Um, but they're perfect tense verbs, meaning it's a past or historical event, something that happened in the past with results continuing into the present. It's already happened. For example, your sins have been forgiven. Past event. It's not an ongoing thing. Ongoing results, one time it happened. You have overcome the evil one. Already it happened. Ongoing results. He uses three uh, names, monikers, or perhaps four, depending on how you look at it. Um, Little children, young men, and fathers. How we understand these groups is somewhat difficult. There's a diversity of opinion, but I, I believe um, that little children, technia in the Greek, is uh, in verse 12. And then again, children in the ESV in verse 13, which is a different word, paideia, that these are affectionate terms, terms of endearment for all believers. So little children, children, that's talking to, to everybody. Um, I, I think that because the change in verbal aspect, for one thing, marks out these two distinct sections, two rounds of address, each beginning with an address to everybody, children, little children. Also, it's just an unusual order, I think, if he's, if he's working temporally through ages. Children, fathers, young men. Uh, it doesn't quite, it's never made sense to me. Um, and then also, of course, the consistent use of these terms by John as terms of endearment in First John. Uh, technia five times, paideia twice besides in this passage. And Jesus himself, speaking to his disciples, uses both terms as terms of endearment. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. And Jesus said to them, children, uh, do you have any fish? So I think they're, they're metaphorical terms of endearment, these two uses of the word children. 
I mean, so if that's the case, what about the other two? Young men, fathers. Uh, and I, I believe that these two categories mark out the distinction between mature and immature believers. Uh, but also that those things are generally, on the whole, reflected in actual age. Generally, older people are more mature and younger men are less mature. So John's point in context where this context where there may be questions in their minds arising from false teachers injecting doubt in their minds and also perhaps uh, doubts arising from misplaced doubts arising from these passages about testing one's profession via examination of our obedience and love. He's saying, fathers, you are mature in Christ. You already have a robust knowledge of God, but young men, those who are less mature, who are vibrant, you no less lack that life and that victory that are in Christ. And so by addressing the mature and the immature in this way, he's actually, what I think he's doing is is covering the whole spectrum of all Christians, that all believers who are in Christ, whether experienced and filled with knowledge or just getting started, you already have all in Christ. So let's look at these these descriptions then of believers. What do we have as believers? The first is addressed to John's beloved saints, little children. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So that's the first description. Your sins are already forgiven. I think it helps here to, to imagine John's sparring partner in this, this uh, epistle. His opponent, what might have the proto-Gnostic false teachers have said in contrast to what he's saying? The difference, I think, between what they advocate and what John affirms can be described in terms of uh, deficiency versus sufficiency or striving versus possessing already. Or one day, perhaps, you will attain versus already you have. Uh, Gnostics trivialized and relativized sin. And I suspect these these proto-Gnostics were doing the same thing. Um, In the Gospel of Mary, which is the fascinating 2nd century Gnostic Gospel, um, supposedly from Mary, but not. uh, There's a, a passage here that reflects this trivializing, relativizing of sin. It says... Peter said to him, to Jesus, while you're explaining everything to us, tell us one more thing. What is the sin of the world? The Savior answered, there is no such thing as sin. You only make it appear when you act according to the habits of your adulterated nature. That is how what you call sin manifests. So maybe in our own version today, sin is really what you make of it. The real goal is to become the best you you can be. So sin becomes a failure to be true to yourself. It's really sin is about you and how you define that. 
But John here implies by broaching the topic of sin and the forgiveness of sin and suggesting that sin is something that has to be forgiven by an offended party, namely God, that sin is more than just what we make of it. It is more than a failure to be true to our inner selves. It is a breach of God's law that creates a debt of wrath that must be paid. And that debt we've seen in John already in first John is paid by the bloody propitiation, the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Forgiveness of sins is found in Jesus Christ alone. Already your sins have been forgiven. That perfect tense, a past historic event with results continuing into the presence. They've been forgiven in Christ. For John, these descriptions that he's giving us do not hinge on how well they're doing or on them attaining a, a, a progressively higher degree of knowledge or enlightenment. They hinge on whether they are in Christ or not. Notice also here, he says... It's not, he has forgiven us, not firstly for us, but for him. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Notice the passage Brian used for, for assurance said the same thing. A couple other Old Testament passages say the same thing. Psalm 25, 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Jeremiah 14, 7. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. So if we make sin trivial or relative, uh, then it's primarily about us. Then we're never actually free, truly free or forgiven. Instead, it becomes a process of continual striving for acceptance. But here, it's a once-for-all act by God for His name's sake. So we must remember this when we face uh, false teaching that pervades our ears, or honestly, we're wired so that this teaching pervades our ears from our own hearts, that, that, that we must somehow continually strive after acceptance with God, and that we'll never fully obtain. We must remember this. No, you are forgiven. Past tense. For his name's sake. The second most and most prevalent description that he gives here um, using various expressions is essentially you already know God. You already know God. In verse 13, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And again, I, identically, except for the change in, in verb tense, uh, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I believe he's talking about Jesus here, him who is from the beginning. There's a story of, of the Apostle John. Uh, he's going to a bathhouse. And as he's going, he, he discovers that there's, the, there's a heretic there named Serenthus. And he's in the bathhouse 
And so John runs away from the bathhouse before going in. And he says, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. This is uh, from Irenaeus, is uh, against heresies. So supposedly came from from, uh, Polycarp. I have the right name in my head. But Irenaeus describes uh, in Against Heresies Serenthus's doctrine, and he says Serenthus represented Jesus as having been born of a virgin, but as being the son of Joseph and Mary, according to the ordinary course of human generation. Moreover, after his baptism, Christ descended upon him in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler, and that then he proclaimed the unknown father and performed miracles. But at last Christ departed from Jesus and that then suffer, Jesus suffered and rose again while Christ remained impassable inasmuch as he was a spiritual being. You can see the, the, the Gnostic flavor here as Jesus was born by normal parents. Then the, the second person of the Trinity or, or the divine descended upon him, but he couldn't be there during his death. He, he went back before his death. Because he was a spiritual being. So he came to proclaim the Father. So whether or not the the bathhouse story is true, uh, it's clear that in John's time there were teachers separating the divine nature of Jesus from the human nature of Jesus. Such that inevitably to get to know the real Christ is to get to know the spiritual Christ. Distinct from the human person of Christ. But John says here, you already know him who is from the beginning. Remember how the book started out. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You get a sense of of how important the union of the divine and human nature is here in John's gospel. It's not that... Jesus, of course, was embodied from the beginning, incarnate from the beginning. But he, the person of Christ, who is now embodied, is one and the same person as he who is from the beginning. He was born. He lived. He died. You know him. We touched the life that was from the beginning, his body. And you know him already because we have preached him to you. That's what John is saying. So already you know Christ. Very similarly here he adds that they know the Father as well in verse 13. Here is the the break. This is where verse 14 should start. Uh, the, the, The change in verb tense. I write to you children because you know the Father. So they know the Father as well as Christ. He's saying, I want to affirm to you already, beloved children, that you know the Father. And again, we can kind of get a sense of the voice of John's opponents um, and what they may have been saying. Another example from the, another Gnostic gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, is a series of sayings supposed to be by Jesus. In one of them he says, If you do not fast as regards to the world, you will not find the kingdom. If you do not observe the Sabbath as a Sabbath, 
I, be, I believe here probably emphasizing more self-denial than, than rest and worship, but you will not see the Father. And another one, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are they who have been persecuted within themselves. It is they who have truly come to know the Father. Blessed are they who are hungry for the belly of him who desires will be filled. So you can see this, this Gnostic mind thinks knowing the Father is more a continual process of self-denial. Of subduing our desires and the impulses of our bodies so as to apprehend the spiritual. Just one more example. If you remember back what, what Irenaeus said about Serenthus' teaching, he said that Jesus came and descended on the human form to, uh, that he proclaimed the unknown Father. That's primarily what he did. He proclaimed the unknown Father. Well, Christian doctrine says, actually, he revealed the Father in the, as the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus reminds us of this or tells us about this in John fourteen six through 11 in response to Philip. Uh, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So he reveals the Father to us in his person. So what John wants to emphasize to the people is already you know him who is from the beginning. You know the Father. You know God already. And so many religions, whether it's, whether it's an old Gnostic heresy or a new religion, uh, speak in terms of, of a journey toward the divine. But John says, you know him. You know him already. Of course, that doesn't mean we don't grow. Paul says in Colossians, we need to grow up in maturity. We need to increase in the knowledge of God. He also says that in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him. And he says, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught. So this is why the difference between soil and t-shirts is so important. Because we are, are to be like trees rooted in Christ, growing in Christ. Whether old or young, mature or immature, we are all rooted in the same soil in Christ. Growing up, thriving, established, never shifting from Christ and his gospel, rather than being like children who, when they get older and bigger, move on. They throw out the old T-shirt, they're on to the new one. We're not meant to be progressing through higher and higher stages of, of understanding and illumination in that sense. We are all under in the same soil, under the same sun. So you understand the distinction between growing up versus growing in and growing out. We don't grow into the gospel. We don't grow out of the gospel. 
we abide in the gospel. Finally, the third distinction is that you already have victory. You already have victory. In verse 13, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Both John and and his opponents see us locked in a cosmic struggle between good and evil, but the battle and the opponents are framed differently. For these teachers, these false teachers, the struggle is, is more between matter and spirit. Again, from the, the Gospel of Mary as an example, this, is, this one's just fascinating to me. It says, liberated from the third authority, the soul continued its ascent and came face to face with the fourth, which is called wrath. This took on seven manifestations. The first was darkness. The second, craving. The third, ignorance. The fourth, the longing for oblivion. The fifth, enslavement to the demands of the body. The sixth was foolish worldly wisdom. And the seventh, the hot-tempered certainty of anger. These formed the sevenfold authority of wrath, which interrogated the soul, demanding, Where do you come from, murderer? And where do you think you are going, deserter? And this is the, the part to pay special attention to. The soul responded, This is what constrained me that has been vanquished. So here's the battle. This is what has been vanquished. And what surrounded me has been overcome. My craving has come to an end and my ignorance has died. So it's a fight to attain higher and higher levels of soul ascent through self-denial and illumination. It's a progressive, ongoing battle that will never have resolution. But John says, contrary, perfect tense, historical action with continuing results, you have overcome the evil one. That's your status. That's your present condition in Christ as victors, as overcomers. Verse 14, he fleshes this out a little bit more. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Uh, Robert Yarborough con- uh, comments here helpfully. He says, it is their victory they have overcome. But of course, biblically, we know that it is Christ's victory on our behalf. Then quoting Calvin, for our head, Christ has overcome the whole world once for all of us. We, we know the saying from Jesus, take heart, I have overcome the world. I don't think it's a coincidence, and I don't think we should take them separately, that strength, abiding in the Word of God, and overcoming the evil one are here side by side, especially as it is a repetition and expansion of the first word to young men. I believe John intends us to see a connection between strength, abiding in the Word of God, and overcoming the evil one. Where does strength come from? False teachers here may be willing to grant that the the fathers, the mature, 
They may have obtained a degree of victory over their cravings and ignorance. Uh, Young men are stereotypically the class of people most noted for indulgence and ignorance, masquerading as knowledge. But John ironically highlights the strength and victory of the young so as to expressly convey, you have overcome already. Even the young, even the most immature person who is in Christ, though he be weak, he is strong in Christ. When he says the word of God abides in you, he means more than uh, you have memorized a lot of scripture. What does it mean for the word of God to abide in you? In essence, he means Christ abides in you. By By virtue of the word of Christ preached to you and your belief in that word, the word God revealed in the person of Christ as offered to you in the gospel has come to take up residence in you, to abide in you. In Revelation 19, Jesus is called the word of God. 1913, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So Christ abides in us as the Word of God abides in us. John says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he's the one who overcomes the devil. And yet in, he indicates in chapters 4 and 5 that we share in that victory. In 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, the, the false teachers, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see the connection between our victory and union with Christ. And then in, in uh, 5, 4 and 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Connection between regeneration and our overcoming the world. And then, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. He who that, he it is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So we should understand John conceptually ties together strength, which comes from the abiding word of God, union with Christ, by which we have overcome past results with continuing action, the evil one. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, We can say that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ know that they are in Christ. They know that Christ has already defeated the wicked one. It is a great thing when you are confronted by an enemy to know that enemy is defeated. That is the position of Christian men and women. They cannot be beaten by the enemy in combat because there is someone standing by them who has done it. So we see here how John is grounding the Christian, grounding us Christians in the indicatives of the gospel, the realities. And this is critical for us to lay hold of as believers because the world, the devil who is the accuser, and even our own consciences will tell us, you're not good enough. (laughs) Test failed. Disqualified. 
But as Paul reminds us in Colossians 2, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Let no one disqualify you. If you are in Christ, no one may disqualify you. And listen to how he grounds it just a few verses earlier. This exhortation is grounded in Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's why let no one disqualify you. Not the world, not the devil, not yourself. If you are in Christ, already your sins are forgiven. Already you know God. Already you have overcome. So little children, you need not grow into Christ. You may never grow out of him but grow in Him. Amen.